Hey, Hanyaks! What up is Friday? Hope you're feeling PDFG. That's pretty darn freaking good. And hope your week has been that way. Today, you know, I say it's for the fellows, but like I mentioned earlier this week, or Fridays are supposed to be that, meaning interviews, guest appearances, blessings from tragedy, so on and so forth. But... Life doesn't always unfold the exact way we need to do it, and we need to adjust and make changes. Like, I haven't done my March book breakdown for March's book, 12 Rules for Life. So, that's what we're doing today. Here we go as we approach the end of April. So, hopefully I can get back on track. I'm on, I'm on, I'm on pace with this month's book to get it finished, and by the end of the month have my breakdown done. That's what I realized I need to do. I, I try and finish reading by the end of the month when actually... I need to probably finish like five days before the end of the month reading so I can sit down and <clears throat> jot all my notes and thoughts and feedback and re for, for the, the breakdown because it's really more of a breakdown than a review. But that's what we're going to be doing today. Before we jump into that, just a friendly reminder that Monday, 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 this Monday, April 25th at 7 p.m., we are doing the 300th episode extravaganza. Uh, it's a live stream. The first ever live stream episode of this podcast to be done this Monday for the, that's right, 300th episode. I don't really think much about how many episodes that is, but until recently, a friend in Denver, Dennis actually, who, who's been on the podcast, he would always bring up that I have over 200 episodes, and I and I guess that's a lot to people. I, well, when I too, when people probably hear me say that I have a podcast, they think, "Oh, that's cool." Like, you know, what do you have? Like 25, 30 episodes, and it's like, no, I've been doing this for years now, and I've really found my stride doing three a week, 52 weeks. So 52 divided by three is roughly 19 episodes a year. Yeah, is that right? No, that's not right. 52. Divided by three, yeah, should be, because 22, sorry, 17 episodes a year. That's all? That doesn't sound like a lot. It feels like I do a lot more. Well, whatever. Don't fact check my math. Anyways, so be sure to mark your calendar. Go subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's the Rambling Viking Podcast. The link, I will put that link specifically along with the website link and all the other ones in the description below. Also, something that I was looking into that I... I never plug or realize is first and foremost, I want to give a shout out to my sole supporter currently, uh, monetarily. And that is Daniel, my good buddy. And, uh, if you, thank you, if you're listening to this, thank you, thank you, thank you. I had no idea. I was just browsing through some of the stuff because you know, this isn't a money making machine and that's not really what it's about. Ideally. Sure. I would love to build this out as my business, but I'm not holding my breath. So, well, I actually kind of am, and I'm trying to work work something into it, figure, figure things out, if you will. But, yeah, there's a way, there's a support link in every episode that I found, and you can give one time, or you can become a monthly supporter, as little as a dollar a month. And so if you, if you want to support this podcast, that's a way, that is a way that you can do it by no means am I pressuring you or am I begging you to do that? That's totally your choice. Uh, as a Hanyak, I will respect that, but, uh, I do want to give a special shout out to Daniel. I had no idea he was a monthly supporter and he's been uh, a monthly supporter for who knows how long now. So, wow, look at me go, right? I just pay so much attention. I just, I haven't even bothered to even mess with the money side of things or ever really even thought about it. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, you can explore that if that's something that you want to do. But Monday, it's 300th episode. There's going to be 
I'm, I'm probably just going to do this because why not? I'm going to be eating liver for because that's probably entertaining for you to watch me eat liver. Uh, I've apparently got an unboxing I've got to do, something coming from Nick, and he sent it in the mail. I have no idea what it is. We'll see. It's something special, cool. I don't know. Uh, we're going to be talking. I'm going to go back through and do my 300 favorite moment. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, but I'm going to go back through because a lot of people are newer to the podcast and there's a, there's, I forget, there's some old episodes. I did a whole series on a bunch of Star Wars stuff that was pretty interesting. And so I'm going to kind of go back through a little bit of the history of the podcast, a little bit of the, the history of the vernacular and how we came to where we're at today, my vision for the future, how I want to continue to build and grow. And then uh, maybe highlight some of my favorite little mini series that I've done in the past. Because uh, looking back, it's been a, some of these were two, almost three years ago now, and so it's been a while. But yeah, Monday, April twenty fifth, seven p.m. Central. Mark your calendars. Tune in. It's not going to be super long or anything like that. I'm going to keep it a tight hour at most, maybe even shorter. I'm thinking forty to sixty minutes. So it'll just be that seven to eight time slot. Hopefully after dinner, during dinner, whatever you want to do. You can sit down, tune in, throw in your chat, your comment, be a, be a part of a very special 300th episode. It's going to be really, really exciting if all goes well. I'm a little nervous about the live stream aspect. Don't expect craziness, crazy cool graphics or anything. I am going to do my absolute best, though, to make it quality and make sure it's good. So if you want to, I don't know, I almost said if you want to come on. It's a live stream. You can chat. So be sure to tune in. And throw in uh, your your hat in the ring in the chat. It'll be on YouTube. I'm not going to stream anywhere else. It'll just be on YouTube, so you have to follow it there. And I'll see about maybe grabbing the video, at the very least, maybe the audio, and posting it after the fact. We'll just have to see. See, We'll see how visual it actually is. So, All right, let's uh, not waste any more time, and let's jump into 12 Rules for Life. So let me just, on the outset, say I think this is a book that everyone should read. And just, it's, it's just a, it's a foundational book. It just looks at life from a clinical psychologist perspective and breaks down just literally the basic, a lot of the basic ingredients and, and, and happenings in life and takes it to a deeper, deeper level. So before I jump into my review though, I actually shout out to Seth I said he I knew he was someone who's read this book and I said hey would you be willing to jot down a few notes and send them over and just a quick summation of your takeaways from the book to add um, to add some supplementation to this episode. Now let me say this. This won't be a drawn an overly drawn out episode. Notice I didn't say it's going to be a short one because I don't think that, but I'm not going to draw this out too much. I'm going to try and keep this reasonable, folks. See, notice I'm changing my tone, my tune. I adapted a little bit. I said, let's be reasonable, not necessarily say, oh, it's going to be a short one today. So that's what we're doing. So uh, this, I'm going to go over, quickly go over Seth's takeaways from 12 Rules for Life and his kind of breakdown. So... <clears throat> He says his take isn't that unique, and I think that's fine. I don't know if there's meant to be so many unique takes. I think there's personal takes, though. So, sorry. I'm not here to give my commentary. These are Seth's thoughts. He says, his honest, My honest take on the book is that it is the most complex expression of common sense principles. The psychological science behind these simple principles is utterly fascinating, though. 
The lobster hierarchy example is super interesting in the first chapter while he is explaining something as simple and mundane as standing up straight. I think the most important rules for me personally would be number seven and number 10. Um, real quick, just to give you insight on what those ones are. Pursue seven is pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. And number 10 is be precise in your speech. And then he goes on to say, um, he thinks that the, uh, the ordering of the rules was acceptable and he says it's a good building block foundational start for anyone who doesn't know where to start. He says the idea of pursuing meaningful things versus expedient things is something that helps me a lot as a teacher. He's a middle school teacher. When I start to think about other things I could be doing since teaching is incredibly difficult. Reminding myself that there isn't always happiness in expediency and there is something fulfilling that comes from the pursuit of meaning is a great way to continue to fight the good fight in a field as difficult as education. I think uh, the last couple years as healthcare workers, educators have especially felt the strain for so many different reasons. So that's a, to me, that's an encouraging note and a, and a good reminder and that, and that he got from this book. So and then he says that then leads into bringing the necessity for precision of speech as discussed in rule 10. He, he, he says <laughs> middle schoolers aren't necessarily the most perceptive about things as delicate as careful speech, but modeling this is very meaningful for them later on, whether they think about it or not. It's kind of tapping on the unconscious thing. There may have been things in school that we didn't notice or pay attention to at the time, but later in life we find ourselves coming back to reflecting on or being appreciative of. That was my extra commentary right there. Sorry. Uh, whether it is right, wrong, or otherwise, my favorite phrase to use with my middle schoolers is life's tough, then you die. Spoiler alert. He kind of addresses that notion in the book. It's interesting. He says he, he learned that from his English teacher in his senior year. Uh, and he even acknowledges that, you know, it's maybe not appropriate for middle schoolers, but it is one thing I am always precise with him about. They will sometimes mispronounce and say, life sucks, then you die. Now, I would never want to convey something as nihilistic as life sucks, but life is tough. As it turns out, it is the toughest thing you will do. But life does not have to suck, and I will always clarify that for my students to hopefully inspire some hope as bleak as the sarcastic hope I offer can be. I think that's also very insightful, particularly in that instance. I'm someone who, before reading this book, I was very... Um, my wife gets very annoyed with me because I am very particular about being precise in speech. And so I re th this rule also resonated with me deeply. So in summation, he says, the book is exceptional in breaking down the common sense psychology principles. And I would highly recommend it to anyone around 16 years or older who is constantly wondering, why is this old foggy telling me to do X, Y, or Z? Or anyone who simply needs some direction in their life. This is a great place to start. And step one is simple. Just stand up straight. I also like the fact that this book, that the fact about this book, that you can gain all of the information you need simply from reading the titles of the chapters. Chapter 11 and 12 are a little more cryptic, but you can get the picture quickly. So that is Seth's kind of overall breakdown of his big takeaways from 12 Rules for Life, much more concise than what mine will be. But the whole point of these book breakdowns is to give you a little bit more in depth. I feel a lot of times when they, people do their book rounds and they talk about it a little bit. Some On some podcasts, they get into certain details, but a lot of times they just beep, 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 touch on it. And I get it's supposed to be a preview, but I like to go in a little bit more in depth and have, um, and without totally spoiling 
everything. So thank you once again, Seth. Huge, huge thank you to being willing to send in your takeaways. I thought those were very insightful, especially how they practically applied or you saw you connected them to your life and your work specifically. And because teaching middle schoolers, teaching is hard. Teaching middle schoolers is, uh, that's a different story, (laughs) but you do a great job of it. So thank you so much for those insights. That was Seth's takeaways from 12 rules for life. And if you guys, if any of the books that I end up reading, if you have read and, uh, and, um, and you, you hear that, oh, that's my book for the month, please reach out and, or let me know. And if you want, you can do something similar. I am welcome all s- summaries and, and takeaways from the books that I am reading. So if you have read any or have read any of the books that I am reading as I'm reading through them and you want to be featured on the book breakdown or just offer your thoughts, I welcome that because I think having um, it just offers a, a diversity of takeaways and shows that uh, books, you know, have a variety of applications and, and can be applied differently to different people. It's interesting seeing everyone's perspective on it. So my kind of one sentence summary of this, we'll get into my review now, my breakdown, sorry, my breakdown basically is this, that it's more or less a psychotherapy session in the form of a book that helps break down life and a lot of aspects of it and natural truths into understandable terms. That's what I kept saying about midway through. I was just like, this is, it it just felt like I was getting a therapy session from a generic one at that, but a therapy session from Dr. Peterson. And, and you might say, well, because it wasn't just talking about concepts and saying, these are the concepts and these are great. It was, he was almost addressing you. He's like, when you see this in your life and then here's, you know, well, why is that? And then he would honestly just walk you through. And so your brain, then you could take situations in your life that were either similar because he, he, he did it through a lot of storytelling, a lot of examples that he came through in his 30 years of practice. And so that's one big thing that no matter where you stand on Jordan Peterson, it was interesting because I was talking to someone and I, ta- I, was, I was in the middle of the book and I was like, you really got to read this book. It's interesting. And he was like, you know, he goes, I, I, I'm not sure where I stand on him because from one person I really respect, uh, I hear, you know, oh, it's great. You need to go read it. And then another person I hear he's, uh, I, I respect also tells me he's a Nazi. And <laughs> I, I thought that was kind of funny. And I, but that's true though. That just goes to show you like people have totally different takes. Now, I by no means think in any way, shape, or form he espouses any sort of Nazism. I think that's something that's been conflated into our world and has been a catch-all for basically a lot of a lot of times, usually right-wing and conservative ideas. And I don't even know he doesn't even get into necessarily politics. This is literally just lifeetics. So that's but but that hearing that statement or that you know perspective is reason enough for me to always say, go check it out for yourself because everyone is going to hear things slightly different. And, um, it's so even if you hear that, Oh my gosh, she's this horrible person. It's like, well, first of all, if I hear that someone's a horrible person, I, I I think that's more reason to go and check them out for yourself and say, okay, did you, are they actually a horrible person? Are you reading into this something or you just don't like them? You know, what's going on here, especially when it's say someone that you really respect and you're like, that's an interesting take because I've heard the opposite. It's kind of like you hear from one friend, this movie's amazing. And then you hear it's the worst movie they've ever seen. At that point you go, well, I don't know how much you got to take both of those with a grain of salt and say, I think I'm just going to go watch this movie and 
decide for myself because it seems to be polarizing or subject more subjective than sometimes there are, there are movies that universally loved and universally hated. And there's some movies where it's like, look, it's either you love it or you hate it. And it's a certain flavor that's not for everybody. So anyways, uh, I, I appreciate the creativeness of the rules. Uh, so this is funny that Seth said this. So I didn't read his before I wrote mine. So, you know, he said all the rules are very clear and you could just read the rules and get takeaways, which I do agree from they agree with. However, I also took away from some of these rules that they aren't overly straightforward, but offer a little, there's always a little, there's a little bit of mystery in each of them that allows for exploration and explanation from his standpoint. So yes, while stand up straight with your shoulders back is a good general rule and you could just take it at that. He then goes into teach us about lobster hierarchies and how that applies and, and, and brain chemistry and working with how you physically present yourself to the world and how that also affects psychologically then how you approach and face the world and, and, and dives into it. And you're like, bro, all you said was stand up with your straight with you, with your shoulders back, stand up straight with your shoulders back. So to me, I, I found that fascinating because I love, as you guys know, I can extrapolate on about anything and overcomplicate it, overthink it and overstate it. That's why we're the rambling Viking here. So uh, I, I definitely agree. You can just read the rules straightforward minus 11 and 12. Those ones are a lot uh, those ones are more cryptic, but the first 10 you can read through and it's pretty straightforward, but that doesn't mean there's a lack of depth of explanation and talking about how they're, they're, they're simple and they're also, di- they're just different, right? And, um, uh, we'll, we'll all read through them in a second. So some of them aren't different, you know, most people think, Stand up with your shoulders back. That's an, that's an obvious one. But most people a lot of times think, okay, now the next thing you need to do is you need to start building good habits. No, he, he, he approaches it from a little bit more of a creative angle. It's almost sometimes like a treasure hunt too when you, when you look at the rules because you think about that and then you're like, okay, how does that then apply to me or improve my life? And, it, and to me, when anytime you have to explore an idea a little bit or a phrase or something you come across, it makes it once you get to kind of the, the, the nuggets of truth if you will, and the takeaways from something that you have to almost meditate on and think about and ponder and kind of chew on mentally, uh, those points then stick with you more. And, and it's storytelling a lot of times is more convincing than just presenting facts. So, all right, let's dive into the rules. So I'm going to go, I'll list the rules real quick, and then I'm just going to kind of go in and give some of my highlights and takeaways a lot of these are quotes or partial quotes from the book. And uh, and then I'll go through my takeaways and it's kind of some of my favorite moments from the book and just my overall, and then I'll finish with my overall thoughts, obviously. So the rules are, the first one's already been spoiled. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. And then then uh, we have treat two, rule two, treat yourself like someone you are responsible for treating. Three, make friends with people who want the best for you. Four, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not who someone else is today. Number five, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Rule six, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Number seven, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. Rule eight, tell the truth or at least don't lie. Number nine, assume that the person you are listening to might know something you don't. Number 10, be precise in your speech. 
Number 11, do not bother children when they are skateboarding. Number 12, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. So uh, I, I would honestly like to ask you the question if you've not read this book. Rule 1 through 10, pretty straightforward. 11 and 12, what? Because <laughs> that was definitely my takeaway. So uh, that's, but yeah, they're, it's pretty straightforward, right? It's talking about, all right, you know, stand up straight, um, treat yourself better, be intentional with your friends, uh, you know, just um, look at yourself. Don't don't play the comparison game to others. You know, can always be looking at how you are improving. Um, take take into account your children and how they behave. You know, try and set your house in perfect order before you know you take uh, before before you take on the world. Consider meaning over expedience. Tell the truth. Don't lie. Uh, you know, benefit it out to people you're talking to. I think that one hit me real hard because that is, I think that's something personally I struggle with, but then also culturally where we're at, I think that one's huge. Be precise in speech. I mean, that one's, you know, you look at these, you're like, oh yeah, these are pretty common sense, right? But at the same time, it's good to have something formally in a list, rules down that, and, and, and kind of, a lot of these things are things that are maybe present or maybe that we know or that we even practice. For me, I'm, you know, kind of care about being precise in speech in particular in language, the more specific you can be, then uh, the clearer things are because we've found when things are vague, they're unclear. And that's where, that's where I believe that um, evil things can creep in. We'll say evil is a strong word, but like that's where you can get corruption. You can get evil, you can get tyranny, you can get problems. And so um, precision is key, but, and then, and then of course, you know, don't bother kids who are skateboarding, but skateboarders are punks and then pet a cat on the street. Street cat. Uh-uh, I don't know about that. So we've already teased the lobster hierarchies. I'm not going to go into that one because to be honest, that's the very first chapter and I very much enjoyed it, but I don't think I can articulate it in the best way possible. But lobster hierarchies are intensely interesting. So, I mean, the first rule is stand up straight with your shoulders back. And this is, this comes back to the common thing we always heard as kids. You know, if you force a smile, you'll start feeling better where you're physical or physically how you present yourself. Let's say to kind of the world quote unquote or life and standing up straight with your shoulders back is a posture of confidence and facing whatever is in front of you. Right. And so that can then put you in position psychologically, mentally to be willing to face the things that maybe we naturally want to avoid that are hard, that are going to show our vulnerabilities or show us where we've fallen short. And so the first and foremost rule is just take care in how you present yourself to the world, right? He says, uh, so some of the, some of the big points that it takeaways for me was life is predisposed to be hard and offer struggle. If we say no early on in oppression, it limits the effect. And you might say, how does this tie into oppression? Well, I mean, basically it's once again, it's you're facing things as they are and standing up straight with your shoulders back is a, like I said, a kind of a confident posture, a facing posture. And, and you know, a lot of times we, you know, that's the, that's the imagery that we use. We say, you know, we need to stand up for what we believe in. We have to be willing, be bold to, you know, to, to speak out when, when, when some, we see some problem, you know, some kid getting bullied in school, we always tell kids, you know, stand up for them and standing up is kind of that upright posture is implied. So, uh, he, he then goes on to talk about no one likes to be pushed around, but people often put up with it for too long. And I think this is true in all circumstances. We're willing to kind of take things because it's scary to stand up straight with your shoulders back because 
what if something could happen? We're, we're kind of getting in, in the way of, in the line of fire in a lot of ways of life. But he impresses the importance that if we don't stand up to those things that are quote unquote oppressive or, uh, or people who are pushing people around, pushing you around, then if things will not get better, nothing will change. We need to stand up for the good, if you will. Uh, one, one great quote, maybe the favorite, my favorite quote from the source one is circumstances change and so can you. I think a lot of times we think we're stuck where we're at and this is how we are. This is who I am. And we don't take into account that our circumstances are always changing. They're always developing and they can, you know, you go from single to being married. You go from being non-parents to being parents. And so why, you know, we can change. And so we have to remind ourselves of that. He says, um, and then he kind of closes out the closing thought is attend to your posture because it has an effect on how you approach the world. Speak your mind, put your desires forward, set yourself up to take on the world, and you'll find you'll be in position to find meaning and happiness. Being willing to face the struggle, the, the scary, unknown difficulty of life is the first step in being able to pursue meaning and happiness. So that puts us into, I'd say that was pretty good. I'm trying not to dive too deep into these. All right, number two, treat yourself like someone you're responsible for treating. This one's interesting. The, the entire idea basically is that, you know, we, we, we don't treat ourselves well. And he goes into stories about dogs and it's like, you're more will, you're probably going to be better about giving your dog medication than taking your own. And so he says, you know, if you really, we need to, we need to, it naturally this comes to all of us humans is that we don't want for whatever reason it's always easier to give advice than to live by it and this is true in all senses of the word i mean especially more recently i've been trying to put out more of that encouragement advice life coaching whatever you want to call it um, ideas and then at the same time by putting those out it makes me think about okay am i living by these because as someone who wants to be true to my word if i'm going to tell other people about this i have to at least be pursuing these rules and following them. And I can't just sit back, you know, it's kind of like the classic, like, you know, you go to a personal trainer and he's morbidly obese and you're like, and he's telling you how to train and get healthy, but he's vastly clearly unhealthy and not saying there can't be overweight personal trainers because once again, they're training you, they're not training themselves. It doesn't mean that they're not a good trainer, but there should be some skepticism there because someone who truly cares, um, you know, will first, first and also needs to care about themselves. So it's an interesting thought, right? And it, it just, it's a simple statement that we all know where it's like, you know, we need to take care of ourselves better. We take care of other people. We, we give advice, but we don't live by it. But it's just said in a slightly different way, right? So one interesting, interesting, and this is where he breaks down what, because the subtitle for this is 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. I forgot to mention that whole thing. And so that's his big dichotomy here is chaos and order and how somewhere in between is where kind of the, the purposeful, meaningful life is. That's where we find the meaning in, in life. And that's kind of the perfect balance. Too much order is tyranny. Too much chaos puts us into nihilism, basically. So, But he talks about in psychology, psychologists are trained to believe that when the patient fails to follow advice... It's actually the doctor's fault, not the patient's. So a lot of times we look at it, it's like the doctor comes you, and he gives you a treatment plan here, take these pills or whatever, and you don't follow it. Or you go to physical therapy and they give you the exercise and you don't follow it, right? We all would look at the patient and be like, well, they're just being a bad patient. And he flips that on his head and says, actually, 
as a doctor, you should set things up and give prescriptions and treatments in a way that people are more likely to follow them than not. We have to account for this flaw in humanity where it's easy to, to, to give treatment and to give advice, but it's often hard. We often don't take care of ourselves in doing so. And then he goes to define chaos and order. He says, chaos is a domain of ignorance itself, AKA the unknown. Order is the short is in short explore territory. It's things we know. It's what we know. It's the field we've been working in. Chaos is, you know, you're going into marriage. You don't know what's going to become of it, or you you start to have kids, and or you look forward to having kids, or you move away to a new town. I've experienced a lot of chaos, and and now being back in Oklahoma, I'm I'm I'm, I'm I see you know I'm more in some ways back in order, right? And then he poses some strong question for parents. It's interesting. He talks a lot about, I wouldn't, I would say for parents or prospective parents, I would read this book because there's a ton of parenting advice and some cool personal stories that he has there. So, and for the, for the parents in chapter two, he asked, would you rather your kids be protected or strong? And I think this is a question that needs to be said loudly shouted from the rooftops to all modern parents, because what do we have? It was helicopter parents. Now it's lawnmower parents. Don't worry, the kids are behind the lawnmower. I had the same question. I was like, where are the kids in relation to the lawnmower? They're behind, meaning they have no struggle at all. And he just <clears throat> says, and I think we all say, we want our kids to be strong, right? Well, then we have to ease up on the protection because protection can make you weak. <clears throat> he goes on to talk about some other highlights. Is uh, He says, it's not virtuous to be victimized by a bully even when the bully is yourself. So he talks about how sometimes we don't treat ourselves well, and we even bully ourselves, and then we and then we find ourselves in a victimhood, and a victimhood mentality is not good, right? And uh, another interesting thing too is you think, well, I'm I'm fine, I'm I'm taking care of the people around me. He postulates that our being is inseparably entangled with others. So if we mistreat ourselves, it will affect those around us. Meaning, the way that you are affects those around you, your friends, your family, your loved ones, your children. We are all intertwined. If I'm having a if, if and, and I, I understand this deeply being in marriage is like when my wife is struggling with something, it, it weighs on me because it's my wife. It's, you know, the person I love most in this world and seeing her hurting and unhappy makes me hurt and unhappy. And so think about that. That one really hit home for me, right? So he closes by saying, ask the question, what is truly good for you instead of what do you want or what would make you happy? Talks about pursuing what is good, not necessarily what makes you happy or what you want. Now, those things can overlap, but it's just a reframing of saying that maybe what we're looking at right now in the immediate you know, pursuit isn't actually the best thing for us, right? And I need something to eat, where's a candy bar? is saying, okay, I need something to eat. Let's go, you know, let's go find some fruit. Tie. Well, what's good? What's a good choice here? And, and you make that, it's probably a bad example, but and he closes with saying, ask yourself this, what would my life look like if I were caring for myself properly? Kind of play out the hypothetical. So there's rule two, rule three. Okay, we're doing good. About five minutes of rule. We'll be done in about 17 hours. So this will be, this will be on par with Lord of the Rings uh, extended edition trilogy uh, if you watched them all through at once, just doing a marathon. So <laughs> some of these are shorter, right? So he says, make friends with people who want the best for you. This one also seems obvious, right? But I have, I've actually can look back at times. I'm old enough now. I can look back at times in my life and realize that, kind of alluding to another rule, I, I made friends in an expedient way, not a meaningful way. Meaning, 
it's a lot of times we fall into being friends with those who are immediately available around us, either who are available within our schedule or our workplace. And we don't actually actively seek people who maybe are, who are actually good for us. They, but we just put ourselves in position to be around just whoever's near. And so this, this chapter kind of brings that into perspective, how, you know, it's not, um, that's not always, we need to, we need to be intentional with that because it's, it's easy. It's easy just to be like, oh, these people want to hang out with me. These people want, you know, they, they want to get together with me or, or they're right here. They're able to, not they want to necessarily, and actually seek out those people where it may be a little bit more difficult and your schedules don't perfectly align, but those people truly want what's best for you. So some, some of the highlights from here is from this chapter, are we, we should always first assume we are doing what's easy, not what's most difficult, because that is, that, that's the natural human proclivity. And, and then he gets into an interesting phase talking about helping people and fixing people. I think in a lot of ways, you know, that's something that's common is people try and, well, they stay in a, re, a bad relationship because they're trying to fix and rescue the person. And it's just the, not the way to do it a lot of times, right? He says before you, and then he says there's also a subset of people who don't, especially if that, that person doesn't want to get better because he acknowledges that, and, and this is something, too, that I think we lose sometimes. We think everyone just always wants to get better. Well, people maybe say, I want to get better. But people really don't want to pursue what it takes to get better. And so he says, before you help someone, you should find out why that person is in trouble. Um, and he says, you have to consider that there are some people out there who settle for their pathetic lot because the path upward is too much effort. Vice and failure are easy. Virtue and good are not. And success, I should say. And he talks about how you're not obligated to support someone who's making the world worse, but you should seek out others who want things to get better, not worse. It's harder to surround yourself with good people than bad people. And I think that's very true. I look back on my life and there are times and I can see key moments where I actually fortunately made the right decision and other moments where I made the wrong decision, but then I make the right decision and correct it. And looking back, it is, it is so clear that there were times where, yeah, I was just doing what was easy because these people were, they like to have fun or their schedules lined up or, and they, and they just, they, they were very open to just let me in their group. And, but then looking back, I'm like, no, I got into, that put me not on a good traje trajectory. And I fortunately found good friends and, and moved away from a lot of those bad decisions, but I've still made it. I've, it's put me in difficult positions at times. So chapter four, compare yourself to who you were yesterday not who someone else is today. This is common sense, right? Everyone knows this. I don't need to talk about this chapter a lot. Ironically, I have about twice as much on chapter four than chapter three, mainly because this book is just so quotable. There's so many quotes and I'm hopefully not spoiling too much. I hope, I hope if were Jordan to ever listen to this episode that he wouldn't go through and be like, I hate, you know, oh, you just ruined the book. You absolutely ruined it. Now they don't want to go read it. You're hurting my business. Cease and desist. That's whatever. It's the best I got. Anyways, he, uh, this is, this is, this is common sense though, right? We all know everyone always hears, you know, don't look at other people. Just look at your personal improvement. And, and we all kind of, I, to me, it goes in one ear and out the other. It's natural that we start looking around and comparing ourselves to others. So it's, it takes effort to, to, to stem that tide. When, when we, when our brains try and lead us down that path, we say, no, how have, have I improved? 
And that's where you can really start to build momentum and see growth consistently over time. And that's something that I've been doing a lot better at. But one giant point that I love here is he says, winning doesn't equal growing. A lot of things in life you can, and this, this to me is another way of putting the, the common trope where people will talk or the common situation where you hear about, you know, you got to the top of the corporate ladder, but you had to step on a lot of people to get there. It's like you won, but are you a better person? No, I think you won through your vice and through nefarious ways. And so now that's how you approach the world, right? And he presents one one incredible comparison. Something that you can think about when you see it. Because sometimes we get so focused on, you know, especially in the West, it's like, hey, how much money is in your bank account? What is it manager? Is it vice president? Are you are you an executive? Where are you at in that chain? That is a measure of how good you're doing in life. When in actuality, he presents this situation, it could be it's much more complicated. We arbitrarily look at one thing that person is more looks more fit than me. Yeah, but how is there but but they're a lazy bum at work, maybe you know, something like that, right? But you work hard, but maybe you're not as fit. And so that's why it, it, it very simply rabbit holes and you can find yourself feeling pretty down on yourself. But just being reminded of the nuance can help us out of this. So he says, Your coworker, he presents this hypothetical. You have a coworker who outperforms you at work, but his wife is having an affair. You have a happy, stable marriage, um, even though, but you're not, you know, he's a tier above you. He's a position above you, essentially. He's, he's, he's been promoted and you haven't. Who has it worse? He doesn't necessarily provide an answer. He just says, this is a good way to kind of check your internal critic when you find yourself being like, man, why is that person doing better? And, and just comes back to, to me, I read that as, remind yourself that everyone has something going on and everyone has their strengths and weaknesses. And sometimes people, to their detriment, are sacrificing certain things for other things. And for me, I would say the gain of career positioning for the loss of family is absolutely always a loss. I would rather be in a lower position, lower paying, lower, less prestigious position in a job that allowed me to properly attend to my family than be moved up and then be put in a position where I couldn't do that. Because I think that is the family provides you more meaning and is better in the long run to look after. So I'll, I'll try and, oh man, I'm going long again. We're not even halfway through these rules. So we'll see if we can make this a little bit more classic me, right? Are you even surprised? Just clap and say, ha ha ha, laugh at me. It's fine. So one I bolded here though, that was interesting. And you think it would be in this chapter, but he gets into it. He says, when you have something to say, silence is a lie. The sin of omission. And he also touches on resentment too, which is something that I've been reflecting on a lot lately and where it comes from, how to deal with it. And he says resentment points to one of two things, immaturity or tyranny. So he says if it's immaturity, then that's on you and you need to grow up and buck up. And if it's tyranny, then you need to speak up. Either way, you need to make a move when you see resentment. So that's something when you find yourself being resentful, you can ask yourself, is it because there is something, you know, there's something afoot, some evil afoot, or am I just being, am I falling into jealousy or something of the sort? And if I'm falling into jealousy, well, I need to just buck up and face the world with my shoulders back, right? 
Um, and he talks about the importance of aiming small, fixing small things. A lot of times too, I think it can be, you know, even when we are looking at ourselves, we say, how am I supposed to get from X or from A to Z? And it's like, well, just get to B and then get to C and get to D. And that's something that I'm learning a lot more of and being a lot more vocal about nowadays. Going through the knees over toes program has really taught me that because it takes, it's taken weeks and weeks and now months to see little progress. But now I, when I think back to when I first started and look at some of the videos that I got, this is why they tell you when you get into getting fit progress pictures, which I haven't been good about. I have one from kind of almost a year ago, maybe. So I might take another and compare those two. But um, he also talks about do addressing your focus. Maybe sometimes we're focused on the wrong thing. And maybe we need to shift our focus because it leads us to resentment. And so maybe aiming for what is good for us, saying what is good and then and not just what is the next accomplishment because maybe the next accomplishment isn't, like I said, maybe getting that promotion isn't the best thing for us. So three questions to ask yourself that you can take away from this chapter is, what is it that is bothering me? So identify the problem. Is that something I could fix? Is it within my control? Would I actually be willing to fix it? Now that's the tough one, right? So those are three questions that I took away from that that I think are we can just apply to anything. And that's honestly something that I personally sometimes am good about doing. But And, and it really helps a lot when you can identify the problem, then you can start to work towards a solution. If it's something you can't necessarily fix, then maybe shift your aim and don't give it so much attention. Control what you can control. That's a common phrase, right? And avoid saying, I shouldn't need to do that to motivate myself. Meaning sometimes we, we get, we're like, why do I, you know, why do I have to be this way? And it's like, well, you're that way. And look, if that's, what's going to push you, it's like, no, no, that's, that's how you are. And if that's how you have to interact with yourself then that's how you have to interact with yourself. Right. Cause then you're, you're, you're almost resenting yourself and how you are. And it's like, no, you need to learn how to deal with yourself and how to manage yourself. And that's part of how to manage yourself. Right. It says attend to the day, meaning take care of things today, but aim at the, at what he calls the highest good. So rule five, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them, right? So this is basically, don't let your kids be a-holes. <laughs> I told you I was going to be trying try to be a little bit more concise. We'll see if we can keep this. The goal is to keep this an hour, but 20 minutes to do seven rules, we'll see. And my conclusion, it'll be under an hour and a half, maybe. <laughs> All right, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. This one was interesting to me because I was like, hold on, the, the, the phrasing of it. It makes sense, though, when he dives into it. Basically, he says you need to be active and willing to shape your children. There is a belief in our world that our children will develop on their own. No, we have to temper their innate desires and shape them into proper people. That is kind of the essence of parenting is that parents, that's what you do. And he talks about how if your kids do, you let your kids get away with stuff that you don't like, you are an adult who functions in the world. So what do you think other people are going to think of your kids? And it's not necessarily like you need to conform and and be like the Joneses. Well, good proper kid acts like that and, and almost be overbearing on them, but just in general, like proper, like good societal, uh, norms and rules, you know, like your kid shouldn't be shouting and throwing tantrums in the middle of a restaurant that off puts people and your, your, uh, sorry. And, and so in, in putting up with that and it, it, it's hard and he talks about that. He goes into some really cool stories about parenting, but then he also talks about, uh, and he taught he, and he's like, yeah, sometimes you gotta be, you gotta be willing to put up 
to put up the fight because kids can seem stubborn. But at the same time, one great point he makes in this that I love, he goes, he goes, he goes, an hour for me is an hour. It flies by like nothing. But to a, to a three-year-old, that's an eternity. And the, the point he makes is that it, it seems hard and it seems like they're going to outlast you in stubbornness. But in actuality, their perception is so elongated and that with a little bit of patience, a little bit of stubbornness properly done, you can outlast the child. So... Uh, my, one of my favorite points and lines probably from that is you can discipline your child or let the harsh, unforgiving world do it to them once they're out on your own. So his entire point is it seems hard and seems overwhelming, but your child will be better if you take the time to put in the necessary effort to properly temper them, to make them uh, and show them how to live in, in the world because you can you can neglect certain things and and let them encounter them on their own in the world and sometimes you have to with, with certain in certain instances maybe but you know once they're older it's like well I told you I tried to tell you and you can go figure it out on your own kind of with older children but with basic things he's like look the world is way more unforgiving way more harsh so you can do it or in in, in the forgiving safe space of your family and your home or you can let them go get their butt kicked in real life. And it's going to be a lot harder for them then than it is for you now. Six, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. This one's pretty straightforward. In biblical terms, it's take the plank out of your own eye before you get the sawdust out of your brothers. And basically, it's like you need to check yourself and realize that you have plenty of things that you need to fix. And he talks about, you know, it's someone who's house quote more more in a metaphorical sense is is a wreck but yet wants to call out the world which is i think the world we live in myself included do this is you know here's all the problems with the world and it's like yeah but you can't even take care of yourself like someone who is like you're taking care of someone else you can't you know calling back to another rule and so he says do things fall apart because we don't properly he asked some good questions do things fall apart because we don't properly tend to them entropy that's a very common law that things do fall apart. You're, look at your car. If you don't get your oil changed, you don't clean it, guess what happens? It breaks down pretty quick. Have you taken full advantage of the opportunities afforded to you? That one hit me hard because the big answer is no. Have you cleaned up your life? Well, no. Then, then address those three questions before you try and take on the entire world. And once you address those questions, you'll be much more fit to take on the world because you've had to go through it. Kind of like... You're going to trust someone who's been through that experience when they tell you, hey, do this, do X, Y, and Z. Because I did X, Y, and Z. Here's where I was and here's where I am because of it. Testimonials, to me, are always have a huge impact, right? And we always, we always take it. When someone has lived something, it resonates with us more than someone who can simply talk about the theory of the idea of something, like myself. Uh, uh, just... I always think of, I always think about these things in terms of, oh crap, do I do that? And yeah, probably so. So this one, six is my shortest notes section because it's, I mean, it's probably the most straightforward. Just take care of your business before you start muddying up everyone else's. Not to say you can't maybe give your thoughts and it's, we don't need to address problems in the world, but I think nowadays we want to take on all the problems in the world and everything that's wrong with the world. And it's like, whoa, slow down there. Take care of your immediate stuff and then you taking care of your stuff 
you then might be able to help your neighbor or your friend or your wife or whoever take care of their stuff. And then next thing you know, that expands out starting with you and then working outward. He says, stop saying those things that make you weak and only say the things that make you strong. He's not saying only speak positively, but I'm a firm believer in it is important how you talk to yourself. So, you know, being careful about how you talk to yourself. Don't just self-deprecate and call yourself a loser and say all those things and give in to the ease of saying those horrible things about yourself. But also don't be afraid to face the hard things and admit when you fall short. Have humility. If you can't run your life successfully, what right do you have to run a city, state, or country? That one hits heavy. Because <sighs> I think we all weigh in on what our leaders should do and how things should be run. And getting into politics is... There's a, the good question around that is, is it a narcissistic thing? Maybe. But yeah, that's rule six. Really, really good one. And all these are really good. So, But I'm going to continue to say that. Number seven. This is what Cess was. And this is one... I will say it, this one resonated a little bit more with me as well. Pursue what is meaningful, not as what expedient. Our entire world is built around efficiency, efficiency. I personally am always about efficiency, the best route between A and B, the best way to do things, you know, work smarter, not harder. And here he says, hold on, hold on, hold on. Expediency for expediency's sake is not always the best thing, right? Uh, it's more expedient for me to... I don't know. I can't think of something. Right. You know, it's more efficient to, to ignore a problem and kind of brush it under the rug. And it takes more time and effort to maybe properly address it and, and set it back in perfect order, if you will. And here he goes into diving in about sacrifice, the importance of sacrifice and how over the course of human history, sacrifice has shown us in delayed gratification that it, it ensures when you sacrifice now for later, it puts you in position to make later better. He says the successful in society delay society delay gratification, sacrifice now for the future, they bargain is, is a way to bargain with the future. Saying, I'm willing to take on something now or go without something now if it means that in the future I'll be better for it, right? Pain and suffering define the world. Sacrifice is how we alleviate, it is the aspirin to the pain and suffering. Uh, I'm not gonna dive into this because I'm way deep and we're almost an hour and I'm only on rule seven, but he talks about, he then extrapolates the Cain and Abel story and how that actually is a larger metaphor for humanity at large and our good and evil desires and how people are, and everyone, everyone has the potential to be a monster. And it, and so we must temper ourselves and protect ourselves from falling into those urges. And it happens one step at a time. And before we know it, we're giving into the monstrous evil ways uh, that that humans can have and so Cain represents the evil in us not in the in the world but specifically in the world because of us that people can use so uh, one one good quote is bread is bread is of little use to the one who has betrayed his soul despite his suffering and he was kind of alluding to Jesus fasting in the desert being offered bread or so uh, he then kind of finishes out by talking about, you know, it's, we, sometimes we talk about, you know, people just need to do this and we just need to force people to do this. And he goes, look at your own life. How much can you actually be a, rule yourself in a totalitarian way? How many times do we say, I need to do this. I should eat better. I should get to the gym. I need to go do this. I need to do laundry. I need to clean the room. I should put those dishes away. And then we don't do it consistently, chronically, our entire lives. So 
that one, that one's like, oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> kind of sat back and remembered, like, you can't even be the boss of yourself, right? So he, his, his entire point is there that meaning trumps expediency. A lot of times the things that have the most meaning are extremely hard, and not the most expedient, at least in the current time, but in the long run will provide you with more meaning and more purpose. And when the, cause when, once you've done the expedient thing, you're good for now, but now it's to the next expedient thing. Number eight, tell the truth or at least don't lie. This one's interesting because we think, okay, so I should just be honest in all circumstances and say exactly what I think. Well, husbands don't, don't call to say your wife looks fat. Just say, but, but maybe refuse to answer the question. Um, instead of, instead of outright lying and saying she looks great. If you actually don't think she does. Right. And he says, when you don't know what to do, tell the truth. And he tells a very cool story about how he was in a position where it was, he was dealing with a, a, a drunken former biker who's prone to violence. He was his neighbor and he was, and he, and he had the courage to just tell him the truth and be like, Hey man, I, I really care about, and this was, you know, someone in his life where he didn't want to be, he didn't want to enable him, but he was terrified that if he didn't, that he would lash out and rage, right? A lot of, it's the classic, like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to just like kind of go along with what to do. I'm going to help him out. I'm going to indulge him in this way. And it actually doesn't help him. And because we're worried that if we, you know, maybe say, Hey, I don't think this is good for you. You said you wanted to be better. And so I'm not going to do this thing. You know, I'm not going to indulge you in this way. And we're, we then think we'll be rejected, but he talks about how he basically did that. And yeah, in the moment it was scary. It was tough, but in the long run, it brought them even closer together and it helped his neighbor in recovery. He says, taking the easy way out and telling the truth are two different life paths. Telling the truth is hard. Easy way out generally does not involve telling the truth. And then once again, brings it back to the personal says that if you won't reveal yourself to, oh wait, if you will not reveal yourself to others, you will not reveal yourself to yourself. Meaning if you can't be open with anyone, then how could you be open with yourself, right? Talks about the importance of saying, learning to say no. Because if we don't learn to say no, and I've alluded to this earlier, then people, the tyranny will only grow and get worse. And talks about inauthenticity. My favorite part from this chapter has to be the inauthentic versus the authentic voice. And he talks about how we address situations and how we view the world, right? So say we have a goal. So it says, did I want, did what, did what I want happen? No. Okay. Then my aim or methods are wrong and I need to adjust them. That's the authentic voice. The inauthentic voice says this, did what I want to happen? Did what I want happen? No. Then the world is unfair. People are jealous and too stupid to understand. It is the fault of something or someone else. Deflection, right? And that's the easy path is to say, well, it's my circumstances, right? Well, this podcast isn't Joe Rogan because, you know, X, Y, and Z. I was not in a good position. I don't have all the fancy equipment. I don't, I don't have a ton of funding. I don't have any sponsors. No, Gus, this podcast is not big because the, well, because the world is just unfair and cruel to me and doesn't want this podcast to succeed. It's probably because there's something I'm missing and I, there's something that I could do better. That's very hard to admit because it, what it admits that we're off and we're wrong. So it says, tell the truth, don't lie because it's better for you. And then he says, you know, in light of that, then set your ambitions, even if you're unsure and pay attention to yourself, watch what you do, be, be your biggest critic and, um, 
and that, that'll kind of put you, set you straight a little bit. So he, he talks about the importance though, of not just being brutally honest, but being careful and being authentic, Me, being honest in the sense, particularly within marriage, you know, you could be brutally honest and just say the most hurtful thing, but you could be an honest, he talks about in fights, you know, tell the truth with, in hopes of seeking, with the, with the hope of seeking peace. Meaning that, okay, I'm telling the truth, but because I want resolution and I want peace. I'm not telling the truth just to tell you what I think or that I think you're horrible. You know, no, no, no. And those are two different things. And it's an important distinction. And it takes careful thought to be able to tell the truth carefully like that. So he he closes out with a really funny uh, metaphor. He says, or analogy, if you don't believe in brick walls, you will still be injured when you run headlong into one. So not telling the truth is just not good for us. Uh, and he also has another ending quote too. Sorry, I, um, that that reads: "All people serve their ambition. In that matter, there are no atheists. There are only people who know and who and don't know what God they serve." That one was like a huge kaboom for me. I was like, ah, because I've kind of always thought that, and I, but after reading this book, I definitely agree. Is that and looking at the current state of our world, it's like people people don't hold a religion. They're whatever the term is for atheists towards religion but they're not atheists we are we are beings that seek to follow and and or worship a god and so we make things gods in our lives that's just how we're built and so he talks about he's like yeah people can espouse atheism but look at how they live they worship something the science that's not that's not science that's that's a cultish religious like so tell the truth or at least don't lie so that's an interesting one because he says, look, maybe you can't say the thing, but just opt not to lie. You know, be honest. And that's a hard one. Number nine, assume the person you're listening to might know something you don't. This one hits me hard too. Surprise, right? And that is something that is deeply lost in a lot of the cultural debates, which might be a preview for something to come for me. But when you when you assume that maybe someone doesn't know or knows something that you don't know, even if they you maybe disagree with the premise they're espousing. You're giving them the chance, you're giving them the respect that you would want someone to extend to you, that you know at least a little bit what you're talking about. And particularly with regards to Jordan Peterson, kind of polarizing figure. People think he's a Nazi who just is has a giant following of angry white men who are trying to, you know, instill a <laughs> fascistic ways and and make these make these tyrants and it's like, "Well, hold on. How about you assume that the clinical psychologist who um, and prof former professor who has been in this world and is actually highly intelligent and practiced clinical psychology for 30 years, seen countless thousands of patients probably, uh, maybe knows a little bit of what he's talking about. Like if we're going to appeal to authority here, maybe we should appeal to that authority. And so that's tough for me because a lot of times I look at a lot of positions and things people say or hold and I'm just like, how can you believe that? I think that's probably the most common phrase we run into and we say about the other side of whatever issue we're on is how can they believe that? And then it just puts us in position to think you're an idiot, you're stupid, and we talk down to them and we you're not going to change people's minds that way. And you're not going to be better for it too. You're going to be more vindictive and more judgmental. Whereas if you say, I don't understand how they could believe that, but I have to assume there's a reason and they got there some way. So what could that reason be? What do I not know about how they are, where they are? And uh, that's, that's, that's a much different position and a much more gracious position and a much more position where 
if you give people credit to be able to explain themselves and then have an honest conversation and tell the truth and do it in a respectful way, you are prone to possibly change people's minds. And this is coming from someone who I have, I, I grew up conservative right in college. I went in, in some ways, I, I, I say I caught my case to the lefties and now I found my, meandered my way back into the more conservative thinking. And now, but now I have a deep understanding of that. And I, and, and having kind of been through that transition myself, I can see how people can get caught up thinking certain things that maybe some of us might look at and gawk at and think that is dumb on both sides of the equation. So he, a couple big points from that, he says, people are willing to do a lot of collateral damage to hold together their, ideolo their ideology. Ain't that the truth, am I right? He says, true thinking involves conflict and it's complex. Here's one that I need to take to heart. You can be pretty smart if you just shut up. And, and he talks about how we're not good at listening. And there's five modes of, uh, of five or there's several different types of conversation. So I'll briefly burn through those. He talks about, and so here's an exercise that I, I am now trying to do. And I encourage you to try out sometime, even if you just do it in your head. He says, try restating, restating a person's statement or point back to them after they make it. I bet you're wrong a bunch. And one good example, I'll link to it, is the Kathy Griffin interview of Jordan Peterson. He would say something and she would say, so you're saying, and then she would state something completely wrong and totally wild, and he corrected her on every single point. It's called the Rogerian method, and it's where you, re where you try and restate someone's side, but better than they stated it. So that's something that I... I'm going to try and do and you should try and do and then you'll find out either you do understand what they're saying or you, you don't and you're inserting some straw man or some slant and angle so the types of conversation he covers here are um well before i get to that too and so in that he talks about a, how a problem can't be solved until it's precisely defined i kind of alluded to this earlier it's something though and just another good quote from this book. This book is just quotes. And so that's why some of this is just me just literally listing off the quotes because that's what it is. Because there, it's so, there's barely a, a page, and I've said this before, that, that went by that didn't receive some sort of underlining star notation from my pen. And that's very important. And if you pay attention to culture now, and particularly politics, what do you see? You see vague problems. And so you see general solutions or really non-solutions. And so... We must be specific in the problems because the more specific you can be, then you can solve said problem. You can say, there's something wrong with my bike. Well, there's lots of parts on a bike. But if I say, okay, what's wrong with it? Well, it doesn't ride really well. It rides really rough and slow and it's hard to pedal. Okay, so let's look at the chain, the pedals, the tires, the brakes. Ah, your tire is flat or has a hole in it. And you can't, a flat tire is very hard to ride on. So that's, or, oh, your brake is rubbing. Guess what? I've identified the specific problem and I can formulate a solution and fix said problem. If I just say something's wrong with my bike and I leave it at that, I most likely will never solve the problem. So the types of conversation he covers, and I'm guilty of all of these, he says there's several different types of conversations. There's speaking to affirm your position in the group, meaning you're kind of jockeying for position, trying to be the cool cat. Almost a lot of times this is the one-upping with stories. Um, there's the... Probably the most common for me and my wife, neither speaker listens to each other. We're just waiting our turn to speak and say what we want to say. Instead of actually listening, taking in, and then responding to what they're saying. Um, that's something that I definitely struggle with. Victory for your point of view. So this would be more like an argument and you're just trying to score points and dunk 
on the libs or cons, whatever, a lecture, which was, which is interesting because he's like a good lecture. You're looking at certain people in the audience, seeing how they respond and then kind of adjusting on the fly demonstration of wit, which is one of my favorites where it's just, you're just out there, just one liner zingers. And it's kind of, it's kind of a classic, like guys hang out conversation. I think like you get an old, your old group of friends together and you guys just kind of go at it and it's, and it's fun. There's really no winner or loser. It's just, Hey, look, be funny, have fun with it. And then there's the ideal mutual exploration. That is the ideal where both contribute and listen as they both, because both are aiming at the truth. They're seeking it. So that's to sum up nine, assume the person you're listening to might know something you don't. And I, I can definitely look at that and say, man, how much, how much better would things be? We wouldn't be caught in echo chambers and not wanting to hear the other side, myself included, if we could all approach things in that manner. Number 10, be precise in your speech. Oh, wow. So it starts with listening and then now we go into speaking, right? And I kind of just touched on that a little bit where it's like the precision in your speech allows things and like Seth touched on life sucks then you die hold on life's tough then you die those are two very two very different statements one acknowledges the difficulty of life without bringing in the downtroddenness of say nihilism one says well life sucks meaning oh so it's it, it's terrible it's bad and, and I think that gets confused. Difficulty gets confused. Difficulty can be bad, but usually it's good for us. And he says, no, 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 life's hard. And then you, you will die. But it doesn't mean it can't be good. Just because something is hard doesn't mean it can't be good. And a lot of times things that are hard are the best. So, you know, that's the best example. Thank you, Seth, for that example, because I think that's really kind of sums this up, right? So let's see what quotes I pulled. Um, an interesting note, too, we talked about uh, in here. Oh, here we go. This is a good one, right? He says, don't underestimate the sin of omission. He tells this cool story about a dragon that people ignore until it grows and it grows the size of their house. And then when they acknowledge it, it shrinks. He says, chaos grows bit by bit and it needs to be dealt with. Don't underestimate the sin of omission. Overlooking things, turning a blind eye, if you will, to things, doesn't make them go away. The escape of tyranny is not followed by paradise, but a desert of journey that later leads to paradise. So he's basically saying, look, when you get out of a bad situation, it is going to be extremely tough for a while. You're going to be in a desert. I feel like I'm in a desert and have been in a desert for a while. But you get through the desert to the promised land. That one's biblical. <clears throat> oh, yeah. So this was where he hits home with marriage. And he talks about how, say, a marriage falling apart due to infidelity. And then he, he traces it back to all the small omissions, sin of omission, of not speaking up, not being precise, not saying that this thing bothers you, not addressing the tension and the problem, but just going about life. And then all of a sudden, there's a chasm the size of the Grand Canyon between you two, and there was a third party involved. Not thinking about something you don't want to know doesn't make it go away, basically. He says, ignored re reality manifests as confusion and suffering. Define the topic of conversation, especially when difficult or it becomes about everything and that's everything is too much is what he says. So he says, you know, just being precise, defining what you're talking about. A lot of times, I think when people try and have like discussions and debates, it, someone gets off topic and, and that's what you'll see. In the, if you haven't seen the Kathy Griffin interview, definitely go watch that here. So here we go. Home stretch. Rule 11. The more cryptic ones. Do not bother children when they are skateboarding. So this one, honestly, I was like, I don't really understand. And 
I kind of was like, maybe it talks about like stifling. Like we, we, we think that we assume, I don't know, ex- to use the term exploration or kind of whatever, you know, it's not bad necessarily. We don't like it. It may be a little bit disruptive, but it's not bad. Um, but he goes to talk about how skateboarding and he, is the export, you know, they're trying these tricks and they're failing and they're pushing themselves and how competence makes people as safe as they can be, right? So we, we a lot of times stifle that and we say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't explore that. It's not safe. And he talks about, well, hold on, what's safe? So you could say, I'm not going to go work out because it's not safe because I'm weak or I've got weak joints or I've got pain. But then you go, you try and go play a sport or run or something, and then you hurt yourself because your muscles are not trained or your joints don't aren't used to being put under stress, and you actually have a fracture. It's actually safer to smartly, and I will say, I will say, like in in good practice, put yourself under stress, work out, and be ready. Like you can you can say, ah, I'm gonna go run a marathon. And the most important thing of a marathon, it's mostly mental, and it's not about the VO2 or the cardio, it's about the impact training. Getting your body used to 26.2 miles worth of beating, of pounding on the pavement. That's what people usually suffer with. They get shin splints, they get whatever, and so it's like, all right, you need to walk it back. And once again, I go back to the gym because that's the simplest, most straightforward example, right? And he talks about, you know, playgrounds made endlessly safe hurt kids, kids because what do you what 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 often happens, right? We take something the way it's meant to be, and we do it in a more exciting or dangerous way because we push our limits because we're seeing where we can be competent. Now, doing that within reason, I think, is important. But he talks about how stifling this only hurts our society. I think we're in an over we're almost in a bubble boy bubble wrap society. It's like, well, that's not someone could get hurt on that. And it's like, okay, well, could someone get impaled or could someone maybe just get get bruised because someone could get hurt on anything, but it's important to let, especially kids. And this is what he hits on explore and explore that range, particularly little boys or boys in general. And that's where he talks about the skateboarding. And he talks about how they stifled the skateboarders on this concrete thing by putting these ugly metal, um, grind, skate stoppers on. And he's like, and now it's ugly. And now these boys can't explore their competence. And that's part of the exploration of life. Right? So we, some of the things that he highlights on, he says, he, you know, we need to be aware of single cause interpretations of society because they oversimplify and tend towards cynicism of humanity. Um, and so just saying, you know, life is economics or life is whatever this is this, you know, oversimplifies it and then kind of makes us cynical. He says, <laughs> there's just so many. So he talks about, he says, people, he says, we need to be aware when people Claim the highest ideals for the good of others. There is no reason to assume that that person's motives are genuine. People are motivated to make things better. Usually aren't concerned. People motivated to make things better. Aren't usually concerned with changing others, but making the necessary changes themselves first. So basically he's like, we should all be skeptical of people who just want to sit back and, and articulate to the world what's wrong and try and fix things. And he's like, the people who actually want to make things better will go and make things better you know they won't the the person with a dirt yard can look at you and say look at all those patches in your yard but they're not doing anything to make things better they don't actually want things to get better they just want to complain but he he talks about this this entire thing is that we shouldn't 
stop, we shouldn't stifle people from pushing themselves in positive ways. And we need to let people explore, push their limits to become competent. It's the voice that says you can't do that. It's too dangerous. Dangerous not to just to men, but women as well as they seek men. Because he specifically hits on how we're stifling. This in large part hurts men because men are the risk takers in general in society. And so they, um, and we stifle young men and young boys. And so they can't, a proper man will, needs to be able to explore his limits and push himself and put himself in quote unquote dangerous situations because that will make him stronger, more competent as a man and then make him better as a mate for women who are seeking them. We stifle men that way. They're underdeveloped or misdeveloped and then there's no good partners for women. So it hurts everyone at large. If you think strong men are dangerous, just wait and see what weak men can do. That's kind of his closing argument in that chapter. And I think it's a very, very good point. And I think kind of along the expedience line, like that's what we ultimately seek. And that's kind of rolls into my next book of this month for the comfort crisis. So here we go. Closing out under an hour and a half, folks. <laughs> 12, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. So he spends a lot of time talking about dogs here to appease dog lovers. Um, this one had me wildly curious. Um, so throughout the book, he talks about the, the capital B being, right? And almost that's like, like kind of like, being is, is, is the experience of life in so many ways. And he talks about how cats are, are different. They are friendly on their own terms. They're only semi-domesticated, different from dogs is what he's saying. They, they are, and he basically looks at them and he says, you know, take, take a cat on the street. He says they are a form of being that looks at humans and approves. Because he says sometimes, he says you go up to a cat and sometimes you'll... Uh, the cat might come over, might run away, um, but it's kind of a microcosm of life in some ways. You know, if we are honest and willing and approach life and uh, truthfully and, and are, be, are willing to encounter it, a lot of times being will, you know, come over and we can pet it and have that moment of of enjoying. Ah, I just pet, pet a cat on the street and also comes back to enjoying the little things. So it's... It's definitely one that I'm not properly giving credence to here probably because it's a little, he, he of course explains it much better, but that's basically his, his statement at large is he's like cats, you know, kind of do things on their own terms, but they also mysteriously are willing approve of, of humans as we are when we approach them. And he talks about, he has the urge sometimes to, you know, and we probably have this to, to spook the cat, but if we maybe temper that and say, and get down on a knee and try and invite it over to pet it. What we'll get is a nice interaction with a, with a cat as opposed to a more cynical one where we give into our, our vice-like nature. So in summation, the book takes life, a lot of things that are naturally true and have been acknowledged or spoken about over the course of history, and but maybe just said in some different ways using stories, hypotheticals, and experiences. It's a good reminder about how a lot of about a lot of hard truths about life and how to set your course straight. So echoing really what Seth said and what probably a lot of people have said where it's, it takes kind of just life or being at large and, and says, here's here. And cause it's, it's a lot of the unsaid or understood things or commonly cliche said things and puts them into different terms and an ordered term brings order to kind of the chaos of maybe the unspoken unsaid and provides us 
with a little bit of a basic roadmap to life. And I'm not saying that it's something that I was deeply in need of necessarily, but I think it's, it is something that we can all benefit from in our society too. I think we have more lost people than ever because of so many, so many different things that we, I'm not going to get into here, but I think part of it is something that I am, I'm really kind of coming into understanding a lot more of, particularly from reading this book, but in the last couple of months is that just, just starting somewhere. You've heard me say this about the gym is what I'll always say. People want to get fit and they get overwhelmed by the gym and they, and I'm thinking about doing a series on this. If you'd like me to do a series on my philosophy on getting to the gym, getting fit and getting healthier and better, then uh, I could do a little mini series or just an episode where I walk through it and build it out kind of like he built this out into a little bit of a simple roadmap, right? But it's just like, it's, it's start with yourself, pay attention to how you move and interact and where you could get better and start making small changes. There's no changes too small that can't be made. So uh, listen, I've got the link for this book. He's released a follow-up book, 12 More Rules, Beyond Order, and uh, it's go read it for yourself. It's, it's foundational. It's good. It'll highlight a lot of things that either you understood and never articulated or maybe things you have forgotten about or you've neglected, and it kind of holds up a mirror and makes you want to say, okay, maybe I can go and get better. And so that's something that you know, I've been focusing on is that just, just start somewhere, right? Or you better than, you know, I didn't do everything I wanted to today or this week, but I did more than I did last week. So now let's try and do more next week than I did this week. But, uh, got the link to his book. If you want to go get it and go read it, I'm reading the comfort crisis. That's this month's book. If you want to read that one, it's kind of in the same vein. In some ways, this guy goes through this crazy experience of getting quote unquote uncomfortable and talks about the importance of how we've lost that in our society and how that could be attributed to a lot of the anxiety and depression epidemic that we see currently. So it's a, it's a really interesting book. I'll put a link there and for that one in the description, a link to Jordan's website. He has a personality test. He has a bunch of stuff. He's doing a lot of stuff to try and help people. So you can go to his website and check him out. He does a podcast, has a YouTube channel, all that good stuff. He's been on Joe Rogan. Go check that one out. And I'll put the Kathy, Kathy Griffin interview where he she constantly tried to restate his point and was totally off and was... It was kind of like it was, it was one of those bad conversations where she was basically trying to get victory and so she would state back. She would misinterpret or mishear what he was saying giving her the benefit of the doubt maybe she just misinterpreted everything and so he would simply correct her it was it was really good i'm gonna go back and watch it i haven't watched it in a while but with that being said thank you so much for listening being a part of the hanya court i hope you enjoyed this book breakdown i hope this either this encourages you to go and read this book it's really not that hard of a read and it's very interesting it's a little bit long you know 300 something pages or so but it's very good. He's a great storyteller and writer. Go check it out. But don't forget, Monday, 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 April 25th, this Monday, 7 p.m. Central, doing the first ever live stream for the 300th episode. Going to be exciting. Going to be a lot of fun. If all goes well, I'm a little nervous that the live stream is going to bust. 7 to 8 p.m. Is the, is the time block. I don't know how long it's going to be. It could be 30 minutes. It could be, well, it'll probably be at least 30 minutes since it's me. But I've got an unboxing to do. I might be eating some liver. I'm going to be talking about some of my favorite moments, episodes, series that I did on the podcast Looking back over 300 episodes, what's that like, how it's changed, and how I'm changing, what's my vision for the future, maybe what I'm looking to do and build out, 
and how you can get involved. So be sure to tune in, jump in the chat, be a part of the party for my 300th episode, my Spartan episode, if you will. It's going to be a ton of fun. I'm really, really excited. I'm going to have to be on camera, make sure I look presentable. Can't be shirtless doing this anymore. Well, I could be. Maybe that's my thing. I don't know. You tell me. Should I go shirtless? Go full Viking and shirtless? I feel like I need a Viking helmet or a warrior helmet if I'm going to be shirtless to really just give off the full persona. But should be a lot of fun. So be sure to tune in Monday. Go subscribe to the YouTube channel. I put that link in the description as well. So as always, thank you for part of be- being a part of the Hanya Court. Seth. Thank you for sending in your thoughts on 12 Rules for Life. If you guys have have read it or once you read it and want to send in your thoughts, feedback, takeaways, please send it all in. Even if it's you don't read it till September, send it in. I would love to address it because these are things that will always be relevant and powerful. And I'm looking to build positive culture here where we're with positive stories about people um, seeking to be better and seeking the best. So go out and seek the best. Aim for the good. Aim for the highest good. Don't don't do just what's expedient, but pursue what is maybe meaningful, what's hard, and be willing to tell the truth. That does it for this edition of the Ramley Viking Podcast. I hope you guys have a great weekend. Don't be afraid to ride the lightning. Keep it PDFG. We will see you back here Monday for the 300th episode extravaganza. Be sure to tune in 7 p.m. That's this Monday. We'll see you then. This is your head, Hanyak, signing off.